0: This evening's scripture is Numbers 12, verses 1 through 9. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write it on our hearts by faith. You may be seated.
1: Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. We have a lot of young people having more young people, and it is awesome to see that. I have to ask, I was not here last week because I was with my new granddaughter, but I have to ask, how awesome was it to be at Old Brick when there's thunder and lightning and the voice of Andrew Meredith preaching on the wrath of God? How was that? Was it amazing? Okay. If the, the whole. The whole idea, is my mic on? Okay, the whole idea that Andrew is preaching on the rat when he just read that, that last verse in verse nine, and the anger of the Lord was kindled. I just had a shiver, just ran right up and down my neck, so... Awesome. Awesome. In all seriousness, uh, it is a heavy topic. It is a heavy topic, the wrath of God. We're not talking about the wrath of God on this Mother's Day. We're not talking about mothers either, though. We're in our series, and this drives people nuts that are not used to being at Grace. We typically, except for Easter or Christmas Eve, we don't deviate from, from the sermon series. Whatever we're on is what we're on. So, we love mothers, they are important, and we are grateful for you. But the scripture tonight is actually Numbers uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and what we are doing, we're continuing this series called Living Stones, and what, it's, a, it's a spin-off of our series on 1 Peter, where Peter said that you and I, all of us, together, as the body of Christ, we are being built into a spiritual household by God. And he also says this, he says, but you... That is the body of Christ, all of you who are in Christ, us together corporately, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the declaration of who you and I together as a people actually are as followers of Christ. Now, go back up to verse 9. You're a chosen race. Now, that's not an ethnicity. That's That's us as a community. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So here's the deal. God declares you and I holy. Holy. Now, when you looked in the mirror, did you see a holy person looking back at you? I mean, think about it. We typically, we fail, we, uh, we're filled with pride, we're filled with greed, we're, we're filled with anger at times. We don't feel particularly holy, but that's the God's declaration about who we are. Now, the question is, how does God take us from what he has declared us to be and practically work that in us so that we become what he says we are? That's what we're going to take a look at today in, in, uh, in Numbers chapter, chapter 12. We're going to look at a case study, a case study in holiness, but one characteristic. Holiness is a big topic. One characteristic. To be holy means to be set apart, to be like Christ. We're going to take a look at one sliver of that in the characteristic, the attribute of humility in the life of Moses. We're going to look at three things. First of all, the context, what's the context that we find this passage in? So we understand understand what it is that Moses is dealing with and what's going on. And secondly, we're going to look at humility. What does it look like as it's, as it's seen and displayed in the person of Moses? And secondly, we're going to take a look at how Moses became that person because he wasn't always that person. We're going to take a look at what God did in him as he worked this holiness out into Moses, which manifests itself in humility, and by ap- way of application, we'll make some applications as well. So please, uh, please pray uh, with me and, and for me and for yourselves, for all of us corporately as we open up God's word. Father, we come to you in reverence, in humility. We, we bow to you. We recognize that you are on your throne. You are great. You are mighty. You are all-knowing, and we are not And we are in need of your mercy. We are in need of your grace. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Spirit, we're reliant upon you to teach us your word tonight that we might be drawn closer to you, closer to one another, that we might live for your glory and for our own good. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, context context so here's here's the context what we have is a leader Moses he's a leader of a nation and he is constantly barraged and berated by critics by critics if anybody's ever been in any form of leadership you understand what it means to be criticized well scratch that if you have a pulse you know what it means to be criticized I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a normal thing. Whatever you do, if you do it wrong or people disapprove, many of them, perhaps all of them, will at one point or another let you know that you are not meeting their expectations. And that's Moses. That's Moses. Two years of constant complaints since they left Egypt two years of constant complaints. And it, it culminates in the earlier chapter, the chapter before the one we're in now, in Numbers chapter 11, where they're complaining about the fact that they have no meat. They have no meat and they and they, they are rebelling and there's a rabble and they, they just, they want to go back to Egypt. God appoints Moses help because Moses comes to God and he's he's so distraught. He's like, Lord, why have you placed the burden of leading this entire nation on me? I just wish that you would take my life. Instead of taking, God, or taking Moses' life, God appoints 70 elders to come alongside of him to lift the load of leadership. And he pours out his spirit on these 70 individuals, and they prophesy. Now, that's a good thing. Then there's these two kind of odd ducks who are not part of the 70, but they too start to prophesy. And Joshua sees this, and he says, whoa, 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 this can't happen. This can't, we can't have any other prophet than Moses. And so he runs off and kind of tattles on them, and he tells Moses, Moses, there's these two guys. They're not part of the 70, and they're prophesying. Like, that's a bad thing. And Moses is like, Joshua, I wish that God's spirit would be poured out on everyone, that everyone would prophesy. But what you see here is you see that Joshua is jealous for Moses being seen as the one who hears from God. And and Moses is kind of deflecting, it's like, Joshua, seriously, it's not a big deal. I wish everybody would hear from God. And then the last thing is Moses' siblings turn on him. Aaron and Miriam. It's bad enough for the last two years that Israel has constantly called into question every decision Moses has made now his own siblings. Everyone is looking to him and saying, you're doing it wrong. I could do it better. You're doing it wrong. I could do it better. So that brings us to the text this evening. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you remember that Moses' wife is Zipporah and she's a Midianite. She's not a Cushite. So say, well, what's going on here? How old's Moses here? He's at least 82. The scriptures don't tell us what happened to Zipporah. It is reasonable to assume, being the fact that Moses is 82, that possibly his wife passed. He took a second wife? We're not told. We're not told. All that we know is that Moses is taking a wife and she's a Cushite. And that's the occasion for them to criticize him. But that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. We can see what this is about in verse 2. And they said, has not the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? That's the occasion here. So what Miriam, and and this is a true statement. God has spoken through Miriam. God has spoken through Moses. Uh, Aaron. He's spoken through both of them. And what they're doing is they're challenging Moses' God appointed leadership and saying, you know what? You're not the only one that hears from God. We hear from God too. I mean, take a look, Moses, you've made a string of stupid decisions. The people are against you. You married this Cushite woman, which surely is a strike against your character and your judgment. Because obviously, they, those two don't approve. So obviously, the rest of the congregation in Israel, they probably don't approve either. So either way, there's just criticism, criticism. We can do it better. 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 What's that last phrase there? And the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. So what happens next? Now, the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Let's just pause for a moment. Who's writing Numbers? Moses is given credit for writing the Decalogue, the first five books of the Bible. Now, I want to ask you, if I declared to all of you that Brooks is the humblest man in this room, how many of you would think that that's a presumptuous, bold, prideful statement? Hopefully all of you. My wife, her hand shot up in the back, right? Okay, by virtue of the fact that Moses declares himself to be the meekest man on the planet, does that not automatically disqualify him from being the meekest man on the planet? It's a trick question. None of you are saying yes. Why? Because you know that I'm about to throw a curveball. Here's the thing. It's only a statement of, 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 it's only it's only uh, It only disqualifies him if it's not true. False humility is a refusal to say something true about yourself which is true. If Usain Bolt said, you know what, I'm just not very fast, that would be false humility. It would also be a lie. He's the fastest man in the world. So if Moses does happen to be the meekest man alive and he says he's the meekest man alive, if it's true that he's the meekest man alive, That does not disqualify him from being the meekest man alive. So, if it's untrue, well then it's an absurd statement. If it's true, what does the evidence bear? What's the evidence that proves Moses is actually the meekest man alive? Let's take a look at what humility actually looks like. By the way, I do have to say that the word isn't humble. The word is meek, but it's also translated in other translations as humble. It's meek. It means lowly. It means of no account, of no esteem. And it also means humble. It means humble. So when I say meek, humble, I'm using them interchangeably. So what does this humility look like? Let's take a look at Moses over the last two years, how this humility has been on display. One of the aspects of humility that, that displays humility is how a person deals with criticism how a person deals with criticism. So we have lots and lots of examples over two years of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt and how he has faced criticism. We have chapter 14 after he's, the Passover's occurred and he takes them out and now they are on the banks of the Red Sea and you can see Pharaoh's army in the distance. He's decided to change his mind and he wants them back as slaves. And so they immediately... The people, the people immediately, were there no graves in Egypt that you should lead us out here to be trampled by Pharaoh's army? Let's go back. Let's go back. Moses, you're a moron. Moses, you're an idiot. What kind of military leader puts his people with their backs against the Red Sea? Stupid. We'd be better off in Egypt. You're the worst leader ever. What does Moses do? Stand and behold the power of God. The staff, the Red Sea's parted, they go through, the Egyptians follow, the sea collapses on them, and they're drowned. And they're safe on the other side. And Miriam writes a song about it, and they all sing it. Shortly thereafter, as they wander, now they're thirsty. You're the worst leader ever. What kind of idiot would lead the people out into the wilderness where there's absolutely nothing to drink? You are terrible. At least in Egypt we were well fed and we were watered we should go back. What does Moses do? He goes before the Lord, he prays, and God gives him water. Shortly thereafter, there's no food. You're the worst leader ever. What kind of idiot would lead us out into the wilderness where there's no food? How are we going to eat? We're all going to die. We could go back to Egypt. There's, There's onions, there's leeks, there's melons. You're the worst leader ever. What does Moses do? He goes before the Lord. He prays. God gives him manna. And then here we are, number two years later, after eating manna every day and water from a rock, wherever they're at, God provides both food and water. Their shoes don't wear out. Their clothes don't wear out. And this whole time, see, you know what? I'm sick and tired of this manna. It's manna, manna, manna this, manna cakes, manna, manna bread, manna this, manna that. Can't we just have some meat? At least in Egypt, at least in Egypt, we could have meat. We should go back to Egypt. Moses goes before the Lord. It's meat you want, it's meat you'll get. You'll have so much meat, it'll be coming out of your nostrils, God says. And they receive meat. And then his siblings rebel. In every single one of these instances, there's three things which, which are common, which are on display, which are evidences of humility. Number one, not one time does Moses ever defend himself. How many of you, when you are criticized, feel the need to defend yourself immediately? Anyone? Me? For sure. For sure me. I have to raise my hand. My wife's in the background. She would see that. Okay, secondly, he always allows God to vindicate him. He never vindicates himself. He never defends himself. He never vindicates himself. It reminds me of... uh, a story I read about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is probably the greatest theological, theological mind that this continent has ever produced. He, he's a, he was a preacher during the first great awakening. He's a, preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, about God's wrath. And, and, and God used him to spark revival and widespread conversion in New England. He was a very godly man very godly man, very saintly, very intellectual, brilliant scholar, brilliant preacher. God used him mightily. Well in his congregation he had an elder that had it out for him. And this particular elder began to say things about Jonathan Edwards and kind of like Mo, like uh, Miriam and, and Aaron began to kind of draw a, a group of people around him that were against Jonathan Edwards and they were saying things which were not true about Jonathan Edwards. And so his church ran him out on a rail. And one of Jonathan Edwards' friends said, Jonathan, you have to defend yourself. These charges are not true. They're slanderous. This is all trumped up. None of this is true. And Jonathan Edwards said, it is the Lord's work to vindicate me. And he left and he left quietly. 12 years later, this particular elder, burdened by his conscience, contacted Jonathan Edwards and asked his forgiveness. But the damage was done. He never vindicated himself. Moses never vindicated himself. Never. And lastly, and this is probably the more impressive one, he always interceded for the people who were criticizing him. The golden calf. He interceded for them. He went before God and he said, if you will not take them into the, into the land, then take me. He, he said, perhaps I can make atonement for you. And he prayed and he interceded for the very people that made the golden calf that said, we should go back to Egypt. Over and over, in every single one of the examples I gave, he was irritated by these stiff-necked people, but he always, he never defended himself, he never vindicated himself, and he always interceded for the very people who despised his leadership. In every single case. That's the meekest man alive. He's earned his medal of humility. He's earned it. There is no way anyone in a court could say, here's an example of how Moses was proud. Well, post-burning bush. So, that's the evidence. That's a display of what humility looks like. Now, are you humble or are you proud? Granted, I don't think any of us are going to vie for, I'm the meekest guy at Grace Community Church, or I am the meekest lady in, in Iowa City. I don't. But just in general, are you, do, you have this, do you have characteristics that display a humble, gentle spirit or more of a proud spirit? And how do you know? How do you know? In 2019, um, I and my wife received counseling because, quite frankly, my wife was finished with my angry spirit and told me as much and said, "We, you need counseling, but we need counseling." So I, I, I went. I submitted myself to the elders and I began to be counseled by, by uh, Jim Sabin, who's on our counseling team. Him and his wife, and Stacy described Jim's like, well you know, describe Brooks' anger. Is he an angry man? Stacy's like, well, he's not so much angry consistently, but he gets angry. And so she's describing what that was like, and, and Jim is listening, and he's taking notes, and he says, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. It's not primary. It's a response to something. It comes from something. Um, and he said, I'm going to start, we're going to start with, with pride. He said it might not be pride, it might not be pride, but that's what we're going to start with. It was a fairly good guess. He absolutely nailed it. We didn't need to go any further than that. That was it. And and, and the resource that he gave me, and I have it here, and it's, it's on the PowerPoint. It's Stuart Scott's little pamphlet. It's not very big. It's called From Pride to Humility. Now, in this Pride to Humility, there are 30 questions, uh, and you're supposed to rate a scale of zero to five, zero saying, this is never, ever true of me. Five being, this is true for me, consistent all the time. 30 different characteristics of pride, 30 different characteristics of humility, and then, and just basically rate them. And so I did this and I went through it. And those are my top four pride indicators. Number one, I talk too much. Shock to absolutely no one. I like the sound of my own voice. That's why I always preach 10 minutes longer than Jason or Josh. True story. I, I tell stories. I like to tell stories. I like to be the center of attention. Secondly, devastated or angered by criticism. I'm not Moses. Not that Moses enjoys criticism, but I defend myself. I want to prove that I am right. Consumed by what others think. I think a lot about what other people think. I don't like to look foolish. Who likes to look foolish? But I, I think about what people think about me. And I know that everyone does, but we're talking on a scale here. We're talking on a scale. And then lastly, being defensive or blame shifting. I don't want to be seen as unrighteous. I don't want to be seen as wrong. And I will argue with the person who thinks that I'm wrong, which when you're married is usually your spouse. It's the people who are closest to you that see see the faults, right? And they're the ones that love you enough to point them out. From pride to humility. So all of you, all of us, in degrees, struggle with pride and lack humility. This is true for every human being. So the question is, how did Moses go from from point A, where he's proud, to point B, where he can say with integrity that Moses was the meekest man alive? What happened? How? How does a person become humble? I'll tell you how a person does not become humble, by trying... harder to be humble. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So what did he do? How did he become humble? Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. This is essentially the, the same thing as being in junior high and hearing the intercom and hearing, Brooke Simpson, please report to the principal's office. This is out of the sky. Miriam and Aaron, right after criticizing Moses, hear God's voice. You need to come to the tent of meeting. And then they see the pillar of cloud descend. If you're Aaron, what is your heart doing at this moment? He's probably confident that God is not going to appoint him leader over Moses. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now, some of you are listening to that passage read, and you're thinking, I don't see how that's necessarily the source of his humility. It's there, it's there. Let me tell you what I used to think about guys like Moses and why they were so humble. And my my worldview has completely changed. I used to believe that Moses was humble because he'd spent 40 years tending sheep, you know, yeah, you, you've, you've, heard the, you've heard the statement, that person needs to be humbled. Now, when, that ha- when you say that, what does that mean? It means that they need to be brought to their knees. And I used to think that Moses was proud in his early days when he was 40, when he killed the Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. And he thought, hey, you know what? They're going to see my natural leadership qualities. They're going to see how awesome I am. They're going to see that I'm the man for the people. And they didn't. And then Pharaoh found out about the murder and then Pharaoh wanted him dead. So Moses ran away and he hid in the wilderness and tended sheep for 40 years. And then when God appeared in the burning bush, Moses sounds very humble. But is he? Remember what what Moses said to God when God said, go to my people and tell Pharaoh to let my people go? What was Moses' response? He says, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh. He's downplaying. He says, I can't do this. God says, yes, you can. I'll be with you. Yeah, but I can't speak. You should send someone else. I'll give you a voice. I'll give you Aaron. Please send someone else. That, that sounds very self, self, uh, um, um, it sounds humble, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I can't do this. I don't have the gifts. He said, well, he's been in the wilderness 40 years. He's learned humility. He's learned nothing. If God says to you, I want you to do task A, and you say to God, I can't do task A because I'm not equipped, and God says, yes, you are equipped, I'll go with you, and you say, no, I can't, I can't do it because I'm not, what you, what Moses are doing at that moment is telling God, I know more about myself than you know about myself. That is the most arrogant, proudful statement that a person could make at that moment. It looks like humility, but it's false humility, which is really just pride flipped over on its head. He's not humble yet. He's not humble yet. So how did he become humble? Right there. With the prophet, I give him riddles. I give him dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. With Moses, we speak face to face. For the last two years, Moses has met daily and encountered a holy, living God. Why is he humble? Because he knows his God. That's why. He knows God in a way no one else knows God. And God is telling Aaron and Miriam, the reason I speak, I speak Moses face to face, you get a dream. You get a vision. Moses and I, I, we talk. He knows me. That's how a person becomes humble, by drawing near to a holy God. Let's take a look. Example, right after the golden calf incident, he prays for them. He intercedes for them. And then turning your Bibles, this is worth looking at. I'm going to read a few verses which are not on the PowerPoint here. Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight." Okay, what's Moses' number one desire, according to that text? Please show me your ways. I want to know you. What does Moses want more than anything else? He wants to know the living God. He wants to know his ways. He wants to walk in those ways. Keep reading. Consider, too, that this nation, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. That's God speaking to Moses. And I will give you rest. And then he said, that is Moses, he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. What do you see here? Moses is crying out to the Lord. Lord, I will not go here into the land of promise unless you go with me. I want your presence and I want to know you and I wanna walk in your ways. I want to be intimate with the living holy God. And when a person draws near to God, here's what happens. They become like him. In Exodus 34, it's a totally weird passage. Moses has this habit of going to the tent of meeting and he meets to get with God as he's as, as, as it says here and as, as it says in, in Numbers chapter 12. And when he comes out of the tent, it says that his face is shining. Now that doesn't mean he's an oily teenager that needs noxema. That's not what it means. The Hebrew word means there are rays shooting out of his face. He's literally luminous. He's glowing. Is that not weird? Well, the Hebrews thought it was weird because they were terrified. It freaked them out. It would freak me out. It should freak you out. If all of a sudden Jason comes back from sabbatical because he's been in the presence of God, and he gets up and preaches, takes the veil off his face, and that would freak me out. And rightfully so. It freaked them out. So he would always wear a veil over his face when he was with the people. Then we would go in the tent of the meeting, he would take it off. Why the weirdness? Why the luminosity? Why the meekest man in the world? Because he spends time with God face to face. He wants to know God. That's his chief desire. He wants to be with God. He wants to experience his presence. And then in verse 30, or 18 in chapter 33 says, please show me your glory. He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. I don't want to be glorified. I want to see your glory. And as he draws near... And as he seeks the face of God and as he experiences his glory, gradually day by day, he becomes more and more like the God he seeks. That's how it works. That's how it works. Here's the deal. I cannot become humble by trying to be humble and trying not to be proud. It doesn't work. If you struggle with lust, you you can't overcome lust by trying... Harder not to lust. If you, if you struggle with the, having the approval, approval of people, here's, here's what's not going to help you. Just stop wanting their approval. That never works. It never works. Trying harder. The moralistic, just try harder to stop being you and be more like Jesus is, is just frustrating. And what will happen if you succeed? You won't really succeed. You'll just fake it. You become pharisaical and you'll only, you'll only deal with the outer things which people can see and not the inward things of the heart. If you want to be transformed and you actually want to become meek and grow in humility or any other Christian virtue, Christ-like virtue, you must draw near and converse with God face to face. Most Christians though are quite satisfied just like Israel to hear the declarations of the Lord through a mediator like Moses. Most Christians are quite satisfied to hear the word of God from the pastor or from their favorite preacher online, occasionally, when they come to church the 1.2 times a month, which is average for most people who follow Jesus. Like the Israelites, they stand at a distance, tell us what God wants, Thanks, Moses, but you are an idiot. And they don't draw near to God. They hear about God through Moses. Or they hear about God through Tim Keller. Or Jason Blackley. Or whatever pastor. And, and the pastors are no better because, oh, where do you think I get my material? Right? It's all secondhand. But here's, here's the beauty. What God is, is saying is, listen, You can come straight to me. So how do I become humble? How do you become humble? How do we grow in this Christ-likeness? How do we become a holy nation? How do you become a holy person? Jesus gives an invitation. He says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Let Let me translate here. Come to me, all of you who have gone through Stuart Scott's pride and humility and feel like you just want to put your head under a bus and be rolled over. You're heavy laden because you look in the mirror and what you see is a proud, proud man. Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, who can't get a hold of your lust, who can't quite seem to change all of the things that everybody else can see about you and you've been defending yourself about and saying it's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault. He says, I'm inviting you, you're heavy laden. Come to me, come to me and I'll give you rest. What did God tell Moses? What did God tell Moses on Mount Sinai? He said, I will be with you and I will give you rest. When you're at peace and you're at rest, you don't need to defend yourself and you don't need to vindicate yourself and you have the liberty and freedom and privilege to, to, to intercede for the very people that are criticizing you. But there's a cost, sort of. It requires us to draw near and it requires to put on a yoke. He says, take my yoke. A yoke is something that you harness beasts of burden, oxen, horses, donkeys, and you put it over their neck and it's harnessed to a plow or a carriage or, or, or a, a cart or something, and, and it, it pulls. It does the work. The animal does the work, but it's, it's, it's the harness. So when you hear that, it sounds well, that sounds burdensome. That's the irony of the passage. Take my yoke my yoke, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. That word lowly here, it can be translated meek, it can be translated humble. It's the same term that Moses describes himself with. Do you understand that the God that he said, show me your presence and show me your glory, that's Jesus. It's no wonder that after two years of spending time with God face to face, Moses starts to look like him, not physically, but characteristically. Moses knows his God. And your God has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he's gentle, and he is lowly. And he's inviting me, he's inviting you, he's inviting us to come and find rest for our souls. Now, here's the thing. Most people are not inclined to draw near to God because they think it's going to be work. He's going to ask me to go to Pharaoh. He's going to ask me to do hard things. He's going to ask me to share my faith. He's going to ask me to serve. He's going to ask me to be sacrificial. He's going to ask me to stop sinning. Yes, 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 and yes. And what does Jesus say? It's easy it's easy. See, the reason we reluctantly draw near and we don't draw near is because we think that we have to try hard to be humble. We think that we have to try hard to stop lusting. We have, we think that we have to try hard to be generous. In other words, we think that we have to pull the weight. And Jesus, no, 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 no. When Moses came near to God, he said, show me your ways. Know what Jesus is saying here? Draw near to me. I'll show you my ways. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. Take this yoke. It's easy. Why? Because you're yoked to Him, and He's the one that pulls the weight. That's the beauty of the gospel. Moses is tapping in on something that Jesus allows all of us to experience. And in doing so, day by day, He makes us more like Himself. Not perfect, that's a future state. But gradually he's declared us holy already and gradually we become what he has declared us. But there's a catch, you've got to draw near. If you stand at the base of Mount Sinai and let Moses talk to God, or you let your spiritual leaders talk to God and you don't do this, if you don't accept this invitation, then your Christianity at best will we'll simply be a version of trying to keep up and running on a treadmill of the things that you think Jesus wants you to do, but you really have no power to do because you really don't experience his power because you don't experience his presence because you're not in his presence. Except maybe when you get together corporately with your community group or you come to church. Moses experienced something different. Jesus is offering all of us something very, very different. Christ like humility comes from knowing God well enough to see yourself as you truly are. So Moses knew his God better than anyone else, but he also knew himself. Moses knew his weaknesses. Moses didn't become a great speaker simply because he followed God, he still was probably stumbled with his words. Moses was 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 a man like all of us are. He's a human being. It hurts. It hurt when people criticize him. He was wounded when his brother and sister did that. And you, you carry your own failures, you carry your own weaknesses, and you carry your own hurts. And Moses knew the truth about himself, but more importantly, he knew the truth about himself through the eyes of God. Moses knew that he was called you're called. Every single one of you, you've been called by God. Moses knew that he was righteous. Every single one of you here, you are righteous in Christ. Moses knew that he had been equipped and he'd been gifted. Every single person here has been given the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ and that Holy Spirit has empowered you and given you a gift to serve God's people. And Moses knew that he was loved. And Moses knew that God was with him and that he would never forsake him. And every single one of you are loved and God loves you and you will never be forsaken. Let me just, you're gonna fail. Tomorrow, the next day, eventually you're gonna fail, but God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. And he draws, he draws near. And he wants you to draw near. He wants me to draw near. And as we do, we will become like him because we will be with him because the Holy Spirit will transform us. Day by day, into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's how Moses became humble, by drawing near to his God and meeting with him face to face. So I challenge you, implore you, ask you, draw near. For some of you that means to receive him for the first time as savior. Confess your sins, be baptized, believe on Christ for the death, burial and resurrection for for the forgiveness of sin for the reception of his Holy Spirit and his righteousness. For others of you, you've made that decision, but you don't habitually draw near. You occasionally draw near. Make it your habit. Think through tomorrow. What would I do tomorrow differently and the day after differently and the day after differently to arrange my days in such a way that I experience God's presence and power throughout the day? That's a very practical question that only you can answer for yourself. And then go into the tent of meeting learn from him and let him transform you let him transform you let's pray father thank you for your grace thank you for your mercy thank you for the invitation and the fact that the cost of this invitation you've already paid you've given your life on the cross and you have given us your Holy Spirit We pray, Father, that you would give us uh, the courage to draw near. Not that there's anything to be afraid of, but we fear things which are irrational. We fear that you might ask us to do something hard. We fear that we won't be able to do it. Or we fear the loss of things which we might have to sacrifice so that we can draw near to you. Lord, help us to, to have faith to do just that, to draw near. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us into the image and likeness of Christ for your glory And for our good, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.